Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Alexandra Roberts, Associate Professor of Law at the University of New Hampshire School of Law. We will discuss her article, Trademark Failure to Function, which will appear in the Iowa Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Uh, the pleasure's all mine. I'm a big fan of your work, as you know, and I really, really enjoyed reading this this paper, which is both, I think, a fascinating and obviously correct argument, and I can't wait to share it with, with readers. But I thought we could start out with some basics about trademark law and trademark doctrine uh, for people who aren't uh, IP scholars or IP specialists. Um, so we all have kind of a colloquial understanding of what a trademark is, right? We use them or experience them every day. Um, but I was wondering if you could provide listeners with a, a kind of more legal or doctrinal definition. Like what is a trademark? How do we distinguish a trademark from things that aren't a trademark? Yeah, sure. So a trademark can be anything, right? So I think you're right. It's easy for people to kind of name a trademark to say, oh, Nike, Starbucks, you know, I can think of a lot of trademarks, but it can be a word. It can be a name, a symbol, a device, a logo. It can even be sometimes a sound or a smell. Um, in one example, I love to share, there's a trademark registration for live goats walking on a grass roof for restaurant services. Um, so it's anything used to identify somebody's goods or services from those of others and to indicate the source of the goods or services, even if the source is unknown. So in other words, every time I go into the drugstore and I go check out the Colgate toothpaste because I've been using Colgate toothpaste since I was little, I don't have to know who makes it. I don't have to know if that's Procter & Gamble or Kraft or somebody else. And I don't have to know where it's made, like where's the factory located. I just have to know that the source is consistent. So I know that because Colgate is a trademark and it's a source indicator I can trust, it's going to be pretty much the same from one time to the next. And it's going to come from the same producer. Okay. So how does something become a trademark? How do you know when it becomes a trademark? And <laughs> what, role does, what role does a government play in sort of policing trademarks? Oh, sure. So many pieces to that question. Um, so some things we treat as trademarks pretty much immediately, right? So for example, if you have a totally made up term, if your term is Excedrin for a pain reliever, um, then as soon as you start using it, you have trademark rights. And you can apply to register that trademark with the USPTO, the US Patent and Trademark Office, and they can grant you a registration. But you don't actually have to do that. So um, you could just go around using Excedrin for a while, and then somebody else uses Excedrin for something really similar that's going to create confusion among consumers, and you could sue them. So you don't need that registration, but you can get it. In other cases, though, um, the rights are not instantaneous. So for example, if you have a descriptive term like Weight Watchers for a service that helps people lose weight, um, or if you have trade dress, so like the kind of distinctive packaging of a certain product, 
um, or color, I think is great examples too. So UPS has been emphasizing brown lately. What can brown do for you? And it's got the brown trucks and the brown uniforms and things like that. Those are not going to be protectable immediately upon use, but they can acquire distinctiveness. So they can become things that distinguish goods and services from the goods and services of others. They can become source indicators over time. Okay. Okay. So what role then does the government play? You talked about the USPTO registering marks when people apply for registration. What happens in that context? What does the, what does the USPTO ask when it determines whether or not to register a trademark? Yeah. So there are a few different things in play um, for a producer to successfully assert that what it's using is a protectable trademark, right? And there, it, it needs to be making use, but use has a lot of different definitions and all of them are important. So first of all, the producer needs to be making use in interstate commerce of the type that um, qualifies it for protection under the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. Second, it needs to be making use with specific goods and services. So um, so trademark rights are not just kind of like property rights in gross as to the world. It's not just Dove is my trademark um, and here's a piece of paper that proves it and I can hold it in my hand and it's, it's an object in and of itself. It's actually Dove for chocolate or Dove for soap, Dove for something specific, right? Mm. Um, and then we need something called use as a mark, which is really the focus of this particular project, right? And it's kind of a subset of this idea of distinctiveness. So I said that trademarks need to enable consumers to distinguish goods of the producer from goods of other producers. Um, and part of that is that the producer needs to use it in a trademark way. So <laughs> it's I'm really excited to do this podcast, but to be honest, I'm so used to talking about this paper with slides and with physical, tangible objects, because this is a yeah. really, really visual kind of project. So, um, so my objection, part of my, my criticism of what both courts and the trademark office have been doing is that they tend to rely too much on kind of um, thinking about the mark in relationship to the goods theoretically, right? So you have Excedrin and you know the goods are aspirin and that's all you need to know to know whether it's going to be um, capable of distinguishing the goods and services and to predict consumer perception. But that's actually not all you need to know. Because if you take a word um, or a phrase and you've got it in teeny tiny font and you've got it on the underside of the package or in some place where people don't really look, you got it kind of hidden away. Or if it's just um, used as part of a much longer descriptive sentence, if it's part of an explanation, if it's part of an um, ingredient list or something like that, then people just won't perceive it as a trademark. And so context mm. plays this crucial role that I think is frequently overlooked, both by the courts and by the USPTO in determining what is or isn't a trademark and what qualifies for rights. Okay. So when, when you talk about trademark failure to function, then what you're saying is that a particular mark isn't functioning as a mark because it's not doing what? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, you know... It tends to sound a little bit tautological, but the crux of trademark law is consumer perception. So when we think about infringement, when we think about whether a user, a junior user is 
infringing somebody else's rights and creating a likelihood of confusion. We're asking about consumer perception, how consumers understand both uses and whether they're likely to be confused. And when we consider whether a mark is protectable or merely descriptive, again, we're asking about consumer perception. So when consumers encounter this mark in context, in the marketplace, not in theory, not in isolation, but right there in front of you, you know, when you're walking down the supermarket aisle, the drugstore aisle, the car dealership, whatever it is, and you encounter a mark in the way that the producer uses it, do you understand it as a source indicator? Do you understand Mm. it to be a trademark, to be something that tells you who makes something or to be an indicator of consistent source the way I talked about Colgate a minute ago? Right. So if I'm understanding you correctly, then in a sense, at least in theory, trademark creation or the existence of a trademark is about reception by the consumer rather than the necessarily just the intent of the producer or the user. That's exactly right. Yeah. So um, producers have a tendency to want to overprotect. So they'll apply to register everything. They'll take a belt and suspenders approach to their intellectual property rights. And they'll say, well, I've got the main word mark already. You know, I've got the house brand. But what about the name of the product? What about the name of the flavor? What about the color for the packaging? Um, so I'm working mm-hmm. remotely today. So I pulled out some examples. I'm looking at some things in front of me. One of them mm-hmm. is a can of shaving cream. And the shaving cream, I'm going to read you all the text right now. So brace yourself. Here's what it says. Skintimate, signature scents, moisturizing, raspberry rain, vitamin E and olive butter, caution, attention. Um, And then I won't even get started with the whole back of the label because there's an endless amount of text there. Mm But when I'm looking at it, Skintimate is at the top. It's in Mm -hmm. kind of this funky font. It jumps out at you. It's got a big white circle around it and then some other kind of curly cues and flowers. And it's got a piece of fruit next to it. There's a lot going on there. And it's in blue um, on a white background with a blue frame and a green frame all against the pink. So there is so much happening to draw my attention to that word. Um, making very clear to me that that's something that the producer wants me to use to distinguish this product from other similar products. So if I were standing Mm. in the aisle at the drugstore looking for the type of shaving cream that I've bought before, I could say, oh, I think I want Skintimate. Do you have that one? Where would I look for that one? Um, Moving on down toward the bottom of the label, it says raspberry rain. So that's supposed to be um, the scent or the whatever, you know, obviously they make a, a bunch of different um, scents of this product. And this is the one I'm looking at. And it is in pretty small font and it's toward the bottom of the label. And it's not something that I would think about as a source indicator. It's not really something that I would pay attention to other than asking, what does this smell like? So there um So there are a couple different things going on there. One is it's not inherently distinctive. It's not the kind of mark that we would expect to be protectable without showing acquired meaning. So without showing that consumers have come to understand it as a trademark. But on top of that, it's just not being used in a trademark way. So it's just not communicating to me as a consumer that that's where um, I should be looking to figure out what the trademark is or what the trademarks are. It's not, again, something that kind of fulfills the definition of trademark, which also means then that if some other competitor uses it, 
I wouldn't be confused at all. I wouldn't think there was any connection between the products, even if they were products competing with each other. I would just think this is a phrase that these different producers use um, to describe smell or to describe ingredients or something like that, and not a phrase that they're using to distinguish from each other. Right. Sort of like two different companies producing similar competing products. Yeah. 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 So in your paper, you distinguish, or rather you, you talk about this sort of dialectic in in trademark law between distinctiveness and use as a mark in terms of how the trademark office and how courts tend to think about the protectability and enforcement of a mark. And you also sort of argue or observe that they both seem to put a lot more weight on distinctiveness than than use as a mark. And I was wondering if you could spend a moment just kind of describing what the courts and the PTO do when they think about distinctiveness and why you think that that's inadequate. Yeah. So we have this great line of cases, um, starting with Abercrombie, that gave us some categories of marks. And it kind of ranks marks according to the relationship between the word mark and the goods or services. So if a mark is fanciful, which is like a totally made up term like Excedrin, or if it's arbitrary, so like Apple for computers or Penguin for books, if it's a mark that's a pre-existing word that doesn't really tell us anything about the goods, or if it's suggestive. So if it tells us, kind of suggests something really subtly about the goods, but it doesn't hit us over the head with it, those are the types of marks that both courts and the trademark office protect automatically. So they look at what the mark is and they look at what the goods and services are and they say that's all the information we need, essentially, to make a judgment about whether consumers are going to understand this as a mark. And then on the other hand, we have marks that are merely descriptive that tell us um, really explicitly in a really obvious way something about what the product is, what it contains, who the intended user is, what the effect is, what the smell is, any kind of piece of information, those marks are only protectable upon a showing that they've come to function as marks. So upon a showing that through use and through consumer exposure, they've gained a second type of meaning in addition to their descriptive type of meaning. So my concern with that kind of bucketing, you know, which bucket, which kind of mark is it? Stick it in a bucket. Now we know whether it's protectable or not, is that this context piece falls out. And the context is actually really important. So um, there's a study done by Lee Christensen and DeRosia in this paper that came out uh, maybe a decade ago at this point, but it's really impressive. It made a big impression on me. Mm -hmm. I always come back to it, um, where they were kind of testing out those Abercrombie categories. And they used a randomly computer-generated descriptive term, which turned out to be wonderful. They put it on a box of cookies, and they created mock-ups of four different versions So on one end of the spectrum, you have the version where wonderful is in the middle of the box of cookies in a different color and a different font with a shadow behind it and a big circle around it um, and all this stuff. So it's really prominent. It really grabs your attention. It is in what they call the trademark spot. So it's exactly where you would look if you wanted to say, oh, what's the trademark for these cookies? And they asked consumers Um, whether Wonderful is a brand name or is not a brand name for the cookies. And 80% of them said it was a brand name. 
So then they started to take away some of those trappings of trademark use. They took away the special font and the shadowing. They took away the circle and the frame. Um, they get down to 70% of people thinking it's a brand name. And they then they make it much smaller. And then they put it in the bottom right-hand corner. Ultimately, you get down to um, fewer than 30% of the consumers shown those images think they're dealing with a brand name. Wonderful is the type of mark that we would treat as merely descriptive. So we would think that consumers aren't going to understand it as a trademark and we wouldn't grant it protection. Um, and what the survey, what the experiment shows is that in fact, we need more information than that. It's not enough to ask what's the mark and what are the goods and services. We have to ask how is it being used? Because if we really care about consumer perception, which we supposedly do, then um, it's pretty clear that consumer perception is affected by the type of use. Mm, mm. And so the problem is that courts are asking the wrong question, or maybe just they're asking an inadequate question to determine whether or not a mark, a particular mark is actually functioning as a trademark in context, as you say. So that's right. I don't think it's the wrong question. I think it's only a piece of the question. I think to get a more fulsome understanding of uh, what we're trying to get at, which is, is this something that consumers are going to understand as a source indicator when they encounter it? We have to um, make that question more complex. Mm -hmm. so, so then when courts are asking this question or when the PTO is asking this question as well, you know, does this particular um, does this particular mark actually function as a mark? Are they considering this question of use at all? Do they do it differently? And sort of how does it actually shake out in the process of evaluating trademarks in practice? So at the USPTO, they do it a lot more. They have a lot more practice with it. Because um, anybody and everybody can file an application to register a mark and send in what's called a specimen. And so in theory, the, the assigned trademark examining attorney looks at what the mark is and what the goods or services are and also looks at the specimen and makes a judgment about whether the specimen shows the type of use that it should show. So the trademark examining attorneys are pretty good at this. I think they're better at it than judges, but there are still a lot of applications that fall through the cracks. And one reason for that is we have a hybrid system now. So we have the ability to apply to register a mark based on current use in commerce or to apply to register a mark in the future based on an intent to use it later. And um, the latter type of application is now the majority of what the USPTO gets. When it gets that, it's going to get um, a drawing of the mark, just a kind of explanation of what the mark is and what the goods or services are. And it's going to have to make an initial assessment. And then much later, up to three years later, it's going to get an actual specimen. And so it's supposed to do a second review at that time, but I'm, I'm not sure that always happens or that it always happens with the rigor that it should. So, so why are trademark owners applying to use marks in advance rather than uh, applying to register marks that they're already using? 
One reason that the system changed to accommodate that was actually just to harmonize the U.S. system with the system in other countries. So a lot of other countries have a registration-based system, and ours is one of the rare use-based systems. So this paper, in fact, is kind of a uniquely American paper in that its insights don't apply that well outside of the U.S. Mm. But that, that kind of justifies the existence of that system why do producers use it? Well, it lets them get a head start. It lets them get an advance judgment call about whether the mark that it has in mind is something it can use. And most importantly, it lets them get priority. Mm. So if you think that you've come up with a mark that's great or that's going to be in demand, that's going to be something that others want to use, you can get out in front of those others, assuming the mark is not merely descriptive. Um, and you can kind of hold your place in line until you start making legitimate bona fide use in commerce. Yeah. Yeah. And in your paper, you suggest that this capacity to kind of apply with for an intent to use a mark also might enable trademark registrants to kind of overclaim the scope of the mark that they're using in the sense that they could maybe claim use in context other than for what they initially submitted to the trademark office. I think the problem is more on the examination end, um, but you're right. I, I One problem with um, granting rights or doing this early assessment before use is actually made is that it can become a really powerful tool for bullying. So not only can these producers reserve a place in line and get out ahead of others and start kind of broadening out the scope and thinking about its use. Um, it can then assert those rights against others, or it can threaten to mm. do so. Um, mm. Mm. I, maybe what you're thinking about is the argument that I make that um, thinking about the stakes of registration, right? So the, I think there are scholars out there who say, well, registration doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is what courts do. But what happens when a putative trademark owner litigates? and shows up in court and asserts the validity of a handful of different marks or a common law mark or a registered mark, um, is that the registration itself brings a presumption of validity. And so even mm. though the trademark office might have said, well, this is a pretty narrow registration, right? So for example, the a case I teach about Giorgio Vodka, where there's a um, orange and gold letter O used on the packaging, and the court ultimately says, well, Maybe this is protectable, but it's very, very weak and narrow protection. It's rare for a court to get that granular. It's rare for a court to mm. make that distinction. So courts are more likely to say in a kind of black and white way, well, are there or are there not valid trademark rights? Okay, the USPTO said there are valid trademark rights, so now we're going to treat them as pretty robust. And we're going to enable you to enforce pretty aggressively and pretty broadly against another producer um, using something arguably similar that might create a likelihood of confusion. Mm, so mm, that argument is mm. more about the stakes of why this stuff matters. Why does it matter if the trademark office says yes a little bit too often? If instead of taking the time to really drill down and, and um, consider the specimens and make sense of the use being made and think about how consumers will perceive it, the trademark office just says okay, uh, we're going to err on the side of saying yes to too much stuff. Who cares? And I think, um, I think the answer is about both 
chilling effects and bullying. So when I, when I talk about bullying, I'm thinking about cease and desist letters that are really broad and really aggressive and that kind of silence competitors and um, keep new users out. And when I'm talking about chilling effects, I'm thinking about new entrants and smaller companies that do that to themselves that say, oh, I, I looked this up on the USPTO website and I found a registration, so I can't use that and I can't use anything similar and I really can't get too close. Um, so they do some kind of self-censoring. And that's not just about what trademark the junior user chooses. It's also about descriptive language. So just pure descriptive language that a junior user wants to put in its advertising copy or on its packaging to kind of help it get the word out and reach consumers in a, in a pro-competitive way and giving consumers all the range of options that they deserve. And they end up self-censoring because of those registrations. Right. So if I'm understanding correctly, then what, what you're saying is that the problem is in part the trademark office not making use as a trademark uh, a sufficiently sort of cabining feature in defining the scope of the initial registration. And maybe even more so, courts not thinking about use uh, sufficiently or use as a trademark uh, in terms of defining the scope of the trademark in an enforcement context. Yeah, I think that's right. So courts very rarely take up these arguments. And in a lot of cases, that's because by the time something is litigated, it's been in use for a long time. So it's a lot more likely to have secondary meaning, even if it wasn't inherently distinctive, um, or to have acquired the kind of meaning, meaning that lets it get over this hurdle. So we're less likely to see failure to function um, by the time something is litigated in court, but the issues still come up and courts are often pretty dismissive of them. So they say, oh, that's not really a thing. We're not really concerned about that. And they kind of move on. Um, as to your first point, I do think that's right, that, um, that use as a mark and failure to function could be taken more seriously by the USPTO, but not necessarily as a separate threshold requirement more as a component of distinctiveness. Because I think that mm. distinctiveness and use as a mark are really two sides of the same coin. And for either of them to be coherent, to make sense and to be a useful tool in determining and predicting consumer perception, they have to be integrated. Mm. Mm. No, that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and, you know, I have to say, when I was reading your paper, I couldn't shake the feeling that, you know, you really highlight the extent to which distinctiveness has kind of sucked all the air out of the room, <laughs> sort of taken over the trademark analysis. Mm -hmm. But in a weird way, the the more I read and the more I thought about the arguments you were making, the more it seemed like use as a mark was actually much more fundamental to to what we at least nominally think is supposed to be the standard for determining whether or not a particular mark is in fact in context actually uh, a trademark and ought to be protectable and in a weird way it almost seemed like if you if you kind of twist the thinking a little bit, you could almost make distinctiveness like a subcategory <laughs> of use mm -hmm, as a mark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, 
use as a mark predicts a lot when it comes to consumer perception. There is a policy piece that's also important. And I think um, traditional distinctiveness doctrine does a little bit more work on that front. So for example, Uh. no matter how much something is used as a mark. So I said, you know, you make it prominent, you put it in the middle, you put it in big font that's different from the other font, you put it in a different color with a circle around it, all that kind of stuff. Um, still isn't going to make us want to grant protection for a generic term or phrase, right? Because generic terms Mm. or phrases need to be available for everybody to use. We don't want anybody to have exclusive ability um, to have a monopoly on those kind of terms. And the same is true to a lesser extent of descriptive terms before they acquire secondary meaning. So even if you put wonderful in that way on the front of a box of cookies and everybody that you ask says, oh yeah, wonderful is the trademark. You still don't want to, from a policy perspective, grant protection to a mark like that from day one. You want to wait, see if it sticks around, see if it really takes hold and kind of transforms in meaning for consumers. It goes from being just a descriptive term to something that serves as a source indicator. Yeah, I mean, it seems like almost ironically, we've evolved doctrinally to the point where we think about sort of distinctiveness or the kind of the categories of distinctiveness as determining when a mark should be protected. But after reading your paper, I couldn't help but think that we should actually be thinking about it the other way around, that it's really more about when we shouldn't allow a particular mark to be protected for for kind of a a policy matter, not because of what it's communicating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, as a general rule, I tend to be in favor of things that are going to make it harder to get registration just because um, litigation is really the exception to the rule, right? Most dispute resolution, most disputes among trademark owners and trademark users get settled out of court and they don't even make it to the complaint stage. It's usually phone calls and cease and desist. And so there's a lot of kind of flexing of muscles and asserting of rights. So those rights need to be really meaningful. We need to be really careful about uh, when those rights are granted. Mm, mm, Yeah. So in closing, Alex, I was wondering if you could just kind of say a little something about what you think courts and maybe the PTO to a lesser degree ought to be doing differently in terms of thinking about identifying whether a mark is really functioning as a trademark and 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 how they kind of perform that analysis. Yeah, so there are a couple of different ways to do that. Um, I've got a diagram in the paper because, like I said, I think the relationship between traditional distinctiveness, Abercrombie distinctiveness, and use as a mark is where the action happens. So it actually depends on the type of mark you're dealing with. um, And that kind of dictates the extent to which you need really obvious use. So when you're dealing with a totally fanciful made-up term, you need more minimal use. You need some of those trappings of use, but um, you don't have to have all of them. You don't have to have kind of the bright flashing lights to make super clear to everybody hey, this is our trademark. Because they see it, they say, oh, it's a, it's a made-up word. I've never seen it before. It must be a mark. Whereas when you get on down mm. to suggestive, borderline descriptive suggestive marks, you need a lot more clarity um, to, to just drive home that point to consumers. So I think it, it's important for fact finders to look at that intersection. I also think we can get some guidance from the trade dress cases. So I've mostly been talking about word marks today. 
Um, but a lot of these really interesting, juicy questions come up with come up um, when we're thinking about product packaging, product design, um, other kinds of trade dress. So like Stan Smith sneakers or an Hermes bag or, um, you know, types of trade dress where the thing that the producer asserts is its um, is its trademark or is its source indicator is really incorporated into the product itself. Those can be really challenging judgment calls. We can't just put them in an Abercrombie bucket. So in those mm-hmm. cases, courts and the USPTO are better at asking questions like, does it create a separate commercial impression? from the stuff around it. Is it the kind of thing that when consumers encounter it, they'll understand that there's only one producer, There's that this is a source indicator for a particular brand, right? So they come at it from a different angle. They articulate it in a couple of different ways, depending what circuit you're in. Um, and I think even though those tests were designed to help make sense of trade dress, I think they can also be helpful with really traditional word marks. Yeah. Great. Well, Alex, it's been great talking to you. Thanks so much, Brian. I really enjoyed it. It's the real thing in the back of your mind. What you're hoping to find is the real thing. It's the real thing.